This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 197 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In today's show, Jason is talking to Peter Stone, who's director of the Learning Agents Research Group at the University of Texas. In June 2012, his team won first place at the International Robocop 2012 competition in the Standard Platform League and also in the 3D Simulation League. Well, Peter, thanks for uh, coming on the show. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk. Um, and uh, I wanted to first start off by congratulating with you with your big win at the 2012 Rope. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we get started by you uh, just talking, th- talking us through uh, what RoboCup is exactly, because I, I, I'm sure people have heard about it, but I'm not sure it... It, what detail people are aware of what RoboCup is, how it works, and, and, and how it got started. Sure. RoboCup is the Robot Soccer World Cup, and it's an international research initiative. It consists mainly of academics, professors, graduate students, some undergrads, and also uh, high school and middle school students who are motivated by the game of, of soccer, creating robots to play soccer primarily, Um, as a motivating testbed for advancing the state of the art in robotics, artificial intelligence, and other areas of computer science and engineering, as well as, as education. And it really, it's, it started out as, uh, exclusively a robot soccer initiative. And since it's beginning back in 1997 and sort of the germs of the idea, which we're started really in 94 or 95. Uh, it's grown into to much more than that. It now encompasses several different types of robotics competitions. Some, uh, there's a whole uh, sector of it called RoboCup Rescue that's built around disaster rescue efforts, disaster rescue scenarios or robots trying to find victims after an, an earthquake. There's um, a part of it called RoboCup at Home, which focuses on creating robots for domestic environments. And there's been a lot of, of sort of other startup kinds of competitions in there. There's also a big wing of it called RoboCup Junior, which is focused at high school and middle school students and even primary school students and educating them on the excitement of robotics. But really the, the core, the beginning of it, and the part that I've been most involved in, and probably the, the core focus of RoboCup has been since the beginning robot soccer and we have stated since then the 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 goal which was originated by one of the founders Hiroaki Kitano of trying to create robots that can beat the best world cup soccer team on a real soccer field by the year 2050 and this is sort of our our grand uh, ambitious goal it's hard to say whether it's uh, it will be achieved or it's achievable but just working towards it has motivated many people around the world over the past 15 or 16 years now to advance the state of the art in, in artificial intelligence, robotics, and, and many other areas. And the, the real, that, that's really the ultimate goal. It's sort of we, an apt analogy is the Apollo mission where the goal was to land a man on the moon. That's a, a very motivating ambition but really the, the purpose of it is you don't get a lot of usefulness out of having a man taking, taking a step on, on the moon. But to get there, you have to make a lot of advances in science and technology. And indeed, they did towards succeeding and accomplishing the goals of the Apollo mission. And that's the, the dream of, of RoboCup as well, that if we can work towards that goal and ultimately possibly achieve or get close to the, to the goal of creating robots that are as good as people at playing soccer, we will have had to clear a lot of technological uh, hurdles along the way. Now, I remember when you first told me about Robo Soccer. I, I don't think you even told about Robo Cup. It was the summer of 90, 1994. We were both in Pasadena. I had just moved out here to do my first startup, and you were doing an internship at uh, JPL. 
I believe. That's right. That's right. And you were just starting your PhD program at Carnegie Mellon. I think I think it was a it was a PhD in computer science or in actually in, in computer mode. science. That's right. Okay. And you told me I I think we we got together for dinner or something, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm doing robo soccer for my dissertation," and I was like, "What is that about?" So I, it was such a it, was, it seemed like such a crazy idea, but it's turned into such a big deal over time. I mean, I'd like to hear about how the idea formulated in your mind to pursue something like that, and also in terms of getting RoboCup the competition uh, organized and going. Sure. So. Uh, it was that, that summer, um, I believe it was in 94, I went to a conference, the, the National Artificial Intelligence Conference, which happened to be in Seattle. And at the conference, I came across a demonstration from uh, a group at University of British Columbia, headed by Alan, Professor Alan Mackworth and his, I think at the time, master's student, Michael Sahota. And uh, Alan had just published a paper called On Seeing Robots in 1992 or 93 that advocated robot soccer as a good challenge domain for artificial intelligence. And at the conference at AAAI, they had a demonstration of two robots playing robot soccer against each other, one on each team with a ping pong ball. And uh, I was I was enthralled because, as you know, I'm a, a soccer player myself. And... Um, so I was naturally drawn to, to robots playing soccer, but also it captured my imagination from a artificial intelligence perspective. I was working on an area of artificial intelligence called AI planning, and where there's a lot of focus on trying to select actions over time, figuring out what actions to take to get from some initial state to some goal state. But at the time, it was typically under the assumption that the world is more or less static other than the actions that you take. And to me, this... And also it was just a single decision maker in the environment. And to me, I saw them having one robot in each team, and it was a much more dynamic environment. The world is changing all the time, so you had to do this planning much more quickly. And to me, they were sort of missing an important aspect of soccer. By having just one robot in each team, they were missing what has come to be known the sort of multi-agent aspect of it, having multiple players on each team. So I looked at it and immediately started thinking, wow, there's, there's tons of possibilities here. This would be amazing to, to work on as a challenge domain for my, uh, for my dissertation. And um, I started talking with my, my close friend, who was also my, my office mate and, and, uh, at the time and also in the PhD program at, at Carnegie Mellon, Astro Teller. He was with me at the, the conference and we were, um, sort of bouncing uh, off of each other, you know, what would be the arguments for using this as a uh, focus of, of research and how are, in the world are we going to convince, am I going to convince my advisor, Professor Manuela Veloso, um, that we should work on robot soccer. This is, you know, something that, that uh, she hadn't done before. It was in um, expanding into much bigger directions. And so, you know, I, I spent a few days really thinking very carefully, how can we make the arguments that this is going to be multi-agent, that it's um, dynamic, that it's going to really expand research into important directions. But before I got a chance to make that argument, uh, Astra and I were going up the, a long escalator at the conference, and we saw her coming the, down the other way, and, and Astra yelled out, uh, hey, Manuela, Peter wants to do robot soccer for his, <laughs> for his dissertation. And she just sort of looked at us and shrugged her shoulders and said, okay. And... Um, <laughs> So that was that was sort of the beginning of a, of a long endeavor that that both she and and I have have been working on as a part. Not it's not our only research, but it's been a um, a part of our research since. And we worked together over the next few years on uh, building robots for RoboCup and um, and also there's there's a simulation league in in RoboCup, and that was really where the focus of my was the the testbed domain for the focus of my thesis. And I and it's, I think it's important to say. Um, you know, nobody's PhD thesis or, or research paper is um, really on, on uh, here we are trying to, to win RoboCup or trying to win in robot soccer. It's always about what is the new algorithm that you needed and to, to, um, to make some advances towards that, that goal. And so my PhD thesis was on a form of a new machine learning paradigm called layered learning, which is basically a hierarchical machine learning um, paradigm where you would 
learn different um, levels of behavior and have each of them feed into the to the next. But it used robot soccer as the testbed. That's where I did the experiments, and that's where I validated that the algorithms were working, along with some other domains. Um, and at the same time, we created together teams that ended up winning some of the some of the early competitions. So. Um, but it, you know, at the po- at the time in '94, there were no such competitions. It was just let's you know try to use it as a as a testbed domain. And um, I, I I believe so. I, like I say, I was inspired by Alan Mackworth at British Columbia. I believe I was the first one in the, in the United States to be to be working on it. But at the same time, there so there just so happened to be some groups um, both in Japan and in South Korea who were dreaming of actually creating international competitions around robot soccer. And this was sort of, um, historically, this is the time when those two countries were competing to host the World Cup, which eventually they shared in 2002. But some of the scientists um, in those countries were thinking, well, maybe if we build up a robot soccer competition, that can play a role in the bid for our country to host the FIFA World Cup. And um, I came to know of, of some people who were, who were working at, and both in, in Korea and Japan and is the ones in Japan who founded uh, RoboCup. And I got to know them, them quite well. I met uh, a gentleman by the name of Itsuki Noda who developed the simulator that has become the, the Ro- RoboCup simulator. I met him at a conference in 1995 and started using, um, becoming one of the, the uh, sort of users of that domain. And uh also, uh, Hiroaki Kitano and Minoru Asada and some of their colleagues in Japan um, were really trying to motivate this towards being a international competition and um, that would drive drive research and science. And it's it's through their vision really um, that it turned into that. And um, I've just had the good fortune to sort of be thinking about it at the right time and got in got in contact with them and have been um, sort of a part of the organization. So more in one capacity or another uh, since the beginning. And now I'm on the, the board of trustees of the, the RoboCup organization, which has grown from those first years when it was just a few people in the world thinking about it. The first competition then already by 1997 had um, probably about uh, 90 to 100 people there. And nowadays the the conference every year has between two and 3,000 participants. So we just got back from the uh, 2012 competition in Mexico City, and um, more than a, a thousand participants in the what we call the major leagues, the ones that are the the professors, graduate students, undergrads, and then more than a thousand also in RoboCup Junior, the the um, the kids that, that are working with the robots, and uh, it's really it's turned into this uh, this really big and exciting yearly event with lots of progress evident every year. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what it's grown into, uh, and I, I still like re- I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. It's, it's so funny, and I just want to point out a couple of things that are uh, might be curious uh, to our listeners is that so we know each other from um, undergrad at the University of Chicago, where we both played uh, varsity soccer together. So I, so you know, well, people understand you know how I know you're into soccer. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you and and. And even of the soccer players, I always thought of you as one of those guys who are just really into the game, right? Like you follow, you probably follow the leagues around the world and, and Europe and stuff like that and are even more into it than a lot of guys. Um, uh, yeah, to some extent. I mean, I definitely watch, uh, watch the, the World Cup, the Euro and stuff like that. I don't follow it uh, rapidly, but, I still, but I've always been really into playing it and I still, I still play a lot. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and also Astro Teller, who is your office mate, uh, he's the grandson of Edward Teller. Is that right? right. The nuclear. He's the uh, Hungarian American uh, nuclear physicist, and, he, and I guess he's known as the father of the hydrogen bomb. At the, you know, so for people who wondering where they heard that name, so that's kind of did did. Uh, did you think? Well, yeah, yeah. Also, uh, <laughs> Astro has, has made a name for himself of his own own right as well. He's. Uh, He's founded a couple of successful companies. He's a uh, published author of uh, of a fiction book that that uh, has done very well, and he's now uh, he's now a, a leader in the the Google X Lab. Oh, is he? Wow. Yeah. Now, so did you uh, were you, were you about to kill Astro when he said that? When he blurted that out. <laughs> <laughs> before you got the reaction where you're like what are you doing yeah i don't i don't remember i, I do remember that, that when she said when uh when uh, manuela said okay we were i, I was relieved so uh, <laughs> I, I don't i don't think there was much time in between 
<laughs> so did he know that you were trying to to put together an argument or you know a persuasive? Oh yeah, yeah. He, he and I were talking about it together actively. <laughs> we, we were thinking about what it what it would uh, what all the this you know what all the merits were. So no, he and he actually also um, ended up entering a team in, in one of the competitions in ninety eight as well. So we, I mean he's he's been involved. Uh, um, it was was sort of involved as well from the beginnings of the thoughts. Wow. Okay. So um, I want to ask you about or the first competition. I remember it was I think it was around ninety eight, and it was I was reading Newsweek because I, I hadn't talked to you much since that summer ninety four, I believe. And I was re- I opened up a Newsweek, and it has this little blurb about how an American team won the uh the first Robo cup held in in japan and and before i even finished reading i'm like i know peter won this thing <laughs> and it turns out not only you won it um but that you like won it was like 144 goals scored and zero scored against like you just killed the first year or two right i mean your teams were you were sort of like the a dynasty for the the, the first uh, i don't know few years of the cup well, you're uh, you're overstating a little bit, but I'll, I'll uh, yeah to to get the the record straight. It was 90, 1997 was the first one in Japan. Okay. And um, in that year, um, my my team, so it was my myself, but also in collaboration with my advisor Manuela Veloso and and um, some other people. I, I think that first year in ninety seven, it was also with uh, Soren Akim, and then in ninety eight, also Michael Bowling was a part of the team. Um, but uh, there was, there was, there were then, and always have been different leagues in RoboCup. And in '97, we won what's called the small size league. These are little uh, robots that, um, sort of the size of a Rubik's cube, basically, with an overhead camera. They were working on a ping pong table, and um, we did win the the competition that year. It wasn't really a a, 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 a dominating win, but but um, there were. Uh, that year and in 98, we won the small size league. It was the simulation league, which is one that's got 11. Um, so in the small size league, those sort of small robots, there were at the time, um, I believe five robots on each team in the simulation league. It's more like a video game. There's it's computer programs, except it, each player is controlled by a separate program. So there's still the, um, the necess- the necessity for each agent to, to think about how it needs to cooperate with its teammates and reason about the opponents in the simulation league in 98. Um, well in 97, I should say we didn't, we, I think we finished in fourth place, but in 98 and 99, we won in that league. And it was, um, I think in 99 that we outscored the opponents by something, I think it was 110 to nothing over, over the course of, of the eight games that, that, uh, that we played. So that was a, a dominating victory, but, um, and that was sort of the culmination of my my PhD thesis was the team that that uh, participated in the '99 Simulation League. But it's a, it's also important to note then that that um, the the progress in the the league was was very evident. By the next year, we entered that same team again that had been so um, that had won by by so much in the the '99 competition, and it finished fourth place un, unchanged. So there were already three teams that could do better than it and um, in the, in the same domain. And so there were, um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's rapid progress and, you know, you can do well one year and, uh, but you know, the, the merit of it is, is um, really the, the incentive is if you do do well in the competition is to let people know what you did and how you did it um, by publishing and hoping that they'll, they'll cite you, um, because that's really, you know, we're all academics. There's no mo- monetary prizes that what you do, what you gain by doing well in these is notoriety and, and hopefully influence, um, which is the coin of the realm in academia. And so there's the incentives were to, to let people know what's been done. And, um, and hopefully that, you know, people catch up and, and do, um, are able to, to improve by, by the next year. And that definitely happened in those, those early years. And we're sort of seeing that again. Um, now it's, uh, a little over 10 years later, we just actually, uh, the past last year, um, won in the 3d simulation league. Um, that was the, the first time we'd won our team had won in the simulation league since that year, since 99. Um, and, uh, it was it, similarly, I think there was uh, something like 136 to nothing or uh, over, um, over the games that we played in last year's competition. And this year, many teams caught up and we were actually fortunate uh, to win again this year in the simulation, the 3d simulation league, but it, the final game went to, uh, went to overtime against a, 
a team from University of uh, Miami, and there were teams from uh, both England and Germany that also, I think, each beat us once during the competition and, and were very, very, very close and really made huge steps forward since since last year. So that's one of the, the main um, features of RoboCup as well, is from year to year you see large leaps in terms of the level of uh, play from a you know, fan perspective, but also the level of scientific and technology, technological research that's going on. And we actively cultivate that as the organizers of RoboCup, trying to always change the rules to make the task a little bit harder than the next year, remove some walls or this year in the uh, one of the robot leagues, instead of having one yellow goal and one blue goal that the robots could use to um, to key off of to know which side of the field they were on, they would cha- we changed both of the goals to being yellow, which uh, actually did it ran the risk of and actually did it in this year's event cause some robots to be confused about which direction they were going on the field. Um, right. But this sort of raised a raised a new challenge of how can you keep a team of robots um, consistently oriented on the field, even if they fall up, fall down, get turned around, get up again. And um, our solution to that was was to have them communicate with one another, um, tell each other which side they thought of the field they thought the ball was on. But there's always things like this that that are changed in the rules to to basically up the ante to make it to to push research forwards. How have the algorithms changed from the first couple of years to now? I mean, are there, are there like uh, certain approaches that seemed really clever and worked really well, but over the years have just turned out to have limitations and that there's just new categories of algorithms or how has that uh, changed over the years? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. It's, um, I mean, there's, there's sort of this uh, evolution that's happened um, both in terms of the software and the algorithms and what people have, have built upon from each other. Um, but it sort of goes hands, hand in hand also with the evolution of the, uh, the hardware. Computers are faster, so that allows for um, more uh, sort of reasoning that requires deeper branching or, or you know, wider branching and deeper searches. Um, the hardware has changed, so now... Uh, there's, you know, the cameras, uh, computers are able to process images from the camera much faster and with much higher resolution. So, I mean, certainly you can see if you, in fact, we just created a a video showing the progress in the robot soccer leagues um, from 1997 and 98 until today. And it's, it's incredibly noticeable on the outside as to the robots are moving faster, making better decisions, um, just looking overall more capable but it's hard to you know it's hard to separate it's what what's the, as a result of hardware advances what's a result of software advances because they sort of do go go hand in hand i think you know in the early years there was people were the fir- for the first time thinking about um things like positioning how do you decide where to put the robots when they don't have the ball and how do you organize the team and that sort of has remained a constant theme throughout and people have sort of built off of each other's uh, um approaches to that um but uh, but in terms of the you know, the low level skills that has that has been driven a lot by the, the hardware capabilities of the robots. Now I remember that a, a key algorithm that you seem to rely on a lot was uh, is known as reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. and it, and it seems like that's uh, just taking a quick look at your uh, research page. It seems like that still plays an important role. Is is reinforcement learning still? Um, still sort of a, a, a key component or is that uh, no longer as, as yeah. Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's, that's always been um, reinforcement learning is, is the, the part of machi- the area of machine learning that, that focuses on learning sequential decision making. Um, so rather than trying to classify uh, a picture as saying that has a ball in it and that has a chair in it, that's known as supervised learning. If you have a bunch of examples of pictures of balls and chairs, then you get a new picture and you try to, pick which is which reinforcement learning is more about how do you choose actions when you have to make a sequence of, of decisions and you don't necessarily get feedback after each action about whether you made a good decision or not. So for instance, if you're playing a game of chess, you have to make a series of, you know, 30 to 50 moves, something like that. And at the end you find out if you, you won or lost, unless you have a, a grandmaster sitting over your, your shoulder um, you don't really have anybody telling you which was the move that made the difference. You ju- you have to then go back and figure out which are the if you won which are the moves that were the good moves that you that deserve the credit, 
and which are the ones that, that were bad moves if you lost that d- deserve the blame and how do you generalize and avoid uh, you know, the bad moves and make better good moves in the future. This is, this is very similar also to what happens in, in robot soccer. You're making a sequence of decisions over time, but now it's a multi-agent reinforcement learning problem. And that's always been sort of one of the driving factors. Reinforcement learning as a field has, um, has had for two decades now some really, really nice and beautiful theoretical results that, um, for instance, guarantee that you can find the best possible policy, the best possible sequence of actions um, under certain conditions. But those conditions are typically impractical when it comes to robotics. They require um, much more experience than you could ever have with a robot. And so a big focus of the research in in my lab and in a sort of small number of of labs around the world um, has been how can we make reinforcement learning practical enough to work on, on real robots? And um, so that that remains a, a theme in my lab, both motivated by robot soccer, but also not. There's there's several students in my lab who um, who do research on reinforcement learning without any connection at all to robot soccer, and and it remains one of the the main themes. The re- the two main themes of research in my lab are machine learning, specifically reinforcement learning, and multi agent systems. How do multiple uh, interacting autonomous agents or robots? Uh, reason about being teammates or adversaries and um, and really also especially the intersection between those two learning and multi agent reasoning together yeah um now is reinforcement learning consistently used throughout uh, the competition by other teams or is it just something that you use and and if they use other things, what do they use yeah no it's it's definitely not something that all the teams use and that's that's also one of the great appeals of of Robocup is that that you can come into the the um, to the competition as an expert in many different um, areas. You can be, you know, some people come from computer vision and robot vision and that, you know, are motivated by that. Some come from um, mechanics and robotics and, and electrical engineering. And um, the, uh, you know, the one, but one of the things that RoboCup forces you to do is to, to really become broader and, and generalized, you have to, even if, even though I didn't really have any background in, in robot vision, um, we need to, we need to get some competence in that. We need to be able to, to focus on that to some extent to, to have a chance because the robots need to be able to see the ball in the field. And, um, and that's actually sort of caused us to branch out. And I have had some students who did their, their PhD theses in the area of, of robot vision. Similarly, there's people who come from other areas and really don't have a background in machine learning. Um, and sometimes they become motivated by RoboCup to at least dabble in it and try out some of the sort of off-the-shelf methods. Um, but others, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't use any learning at all. They, they um, program, the, program the behaviors themselves, um, focus on, in fact, you know, one of the, uh, I, I mentioned that we won, won in the 3D simulation competition last year. We have a paper that's going to be um, published at the main uh, artificial intelligence conference, the AAAI, the same one that we talked about earlier from 1994. The 2012 version is, in a, is next week in Toronto, um, in late July, and we will be publishing there the paper that describes the machine learning approach we used to um, enabling a humanoid simulated robot to, to walk faster than the other, than any of the other um, humanoid simulated robots were able to in the 3d competition. And um, the team that had won the previous year, we asked them, how did their walk work? Um, It was a team from China and they, you know, how did they develop it? And they basically pointed at, uh, at, a, at uh, I think he was an undergraduate student and said, this guy basically sat in a room for six months tweaking it, com- programming it himself and looking at what was working and, and not working. And um, they had by far in the 2010 competition, the fastest walk. And that gave them a huge advantage. And we sort of looked at each other and said, well, if we have a, a if we want to have a hope next year, we need to come up with a better walk, but we definitely don't want to do what they did. We don't want to sit there and, and tweak parameters for six months until we find something that works. We really need to find a way to mo- to automate this, and um, and so this became a machine learning opportunity. And we we came up with a um, a new dis- distributed approach that uh, using a using sort of a state of the art reinforcement learning algorithm um, and modifying it in some ways in some ways to suit this this problem. And it led to a to this publication to this paper that will be presented by my student Patrick McAlpine uh, at AAAI next week. 
Um, could you repeat the first part of that? You, um, it, uh, some reason it died, uh, the connection died, and I didn't hear it. You said they pointed to the undergrad, and, he, and they asked him how he did it, and he said, and then it went blank. What, what did he say? <laughs> Uh, he said that basically that that uh, that student sat in a room for six months. Uh, I don't know about sat in the room, but worked for six months tweaking parameters to try to get the walk to work um, manually. Basically, looking and saying that leg needs to move a little faster that way, or you know, here's the, the uh, we need to move this joint a little bit more to the right, or and um, it was a manual effort of programming, and it was successful. They were by far the best team in 2010. Um, yeah. But it was uh, a lot of, of sort of uh, manual programming as opposed to a machine learning approach. Right. I remember you first telling me about reinforcement learning back in, uh, I don't know, 98, 99. And uh, I think one of the, one of the ones, the, uh, one of the papers that I read on the topic was about TD Gammon, where the mm-hmm. guy, I think Tesoro or something. Yeah, that's right. Like, Jerry Tesoro. Is it Bell Labs or something? Uh, he, was at, he, he was at IBM. 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 Okay, and he created like grandmaster level backgammon player using reinforcement level reinforcement learning and neural nets. I think was like some combination of that. That's right. Is that right? And yeah. now, when you first started getting reinforcement learning, were was that was his approach an inspiration, or did you pull from other sources? I mean, where did where did reinforcement learning come into your thinking? Um, yeah, I mean, at the time that I was first getting involved, his his uh, neurogammon, it's called, it was was one of the the big success stories of reinforcement learning actually being applied to a, a domain as opposed to um, most of the results prior to that were, as I mentioned before, sort of theoretical results that it, that it should work in theory under certain conditions. Um, but uh, for a long time, um, and this was actually a thorn in the side of, of the field of reinforcement learning for a long time, um, his system was one of the only success stories of uh, reinforcement learning in a practical perspective, um, but that's really that's that's changed recently, and there there are a lot now of of um, examples of reinforcement learning working in um, more in robotics domains, in um, some sort of stock trading kinds of domains. Um, people have been have been expanding it, it out. Uh, it's still a, it's sort of a an ongoing challenge in the field. Um, to make reinforcement learning really hit prime time from a, from a practical perspective. Um, but there's, there's been a lot of progress since that time in terms of, and, and that's really, you know, that, that is, like I say, is sort of the motivating, the biggest motivating factor in, in my lab's research is how to make, to sort of take the, um, the, the theoretical results of what should be able to be possible if all conditions are, are right. Um, and, and try to show that, try to come up with algorithms that, 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 will um, work in practice when you're very limited with the amount of training experience you have, when you have a very noisy domain and, and things like this. And um, so, uh, but, but yeah, that the Jerry Tassaro's work is, uh, and he's, he's worked on other domains since, uh, since Neurogammon um, at, at IBM and he's, he's, he's still working there. Um, and uh, that that's been been influential. He also got into a multi uh, multi agent domain, and some of my students have done internships in in his lab. So we've we've maintained a connection over the years as well. Oh, cool. Now, what um, what do you see as the relationship between, or I, I guess, yeah, the relationship between the mechanical side of the robots and the um, and the intelligence side, the software side, because. And what I'm interested in specifically is like, what is going to be the bigger limitation in your mind to get to the, to the point where you're talking about the goal of 2050 of saying actually be able to play and beat um, a top, you know, men's uh, World Cup team? I mean, how, I mean, is it is it if you had? I mean, I know this is, I'm asking you to predict something way in the future, so maybe that's unfair. But I mean, it seems to me that the mechanical side is behind. It might be ultimately be a harder problem to solve, but maybe that's not true. What What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. It's, it's, um, I mean, yeah, I, I think right now that's the, the, the mechanical side is the biggest difference. I mean, the reason that, that it's uh, hard to imagine that it would ever be possible is that robots just don't move as quickly and, and uh, with as much agility as people do. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's the reason that there's, there's really, we, we have actually since 2007 at, at every RoboCup, we've had a game of, uh, people playing against robots, the, the wheeled robots. And, mm-hmm. 
before playing, it's always as well, these robots look really fast and, and strong. It's going to be dangerous. But then when the people jump on and it's, you know, it's usually the, the trustees of RoboCup. So we're all sort of, you know, middle-aged and uh, amateur, distinctly amateur soccer players, but we, we can um, move the ball just much more quickly and with much more facility than the, the robots can. And just, and it, it becomes clear that the, um, even the, the, uh, the wheeled robots are still not at the level of being able to move as, as quickly mechanically. And so, so I think that is one of the big, um, the big hurdles. On the other hand, you know, the humanoid robotics has, has been progressing very rapidly. And um, there have been robots now that, that do at least walk and, and sort of do slow jogs in sort of human-like form. And it's, it's, not, um, it's not out of the question that, that within the sort of 40-year time span that we have until the 2050 goal, that, that robots will be able to move um, possibly uh, as quickly and, and with as much agility or possibly even surpassing people in, in that regard. When that happens, then, um, or if and when that happens, then I think the, the pressure will really be on the quick decision-making, the reasoning, the trying to outwit um, the, the opponents that happens um, with, with real people when they're playing soccer with one another and against one another. Um, and uh, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think there's, there's really, those are the two um, sort of parallel threads that, that need to be pushed in, and, um, and they're not independent. The, the software and the, the algorithms you can use really do depend on the hardware that you have. It's really embodied cognition is, is one of the, the big things that that's emphasized and pushed by, by Robocop. But in some of the leagues in the simulation league, for instance, there are no real robots and we can think more about the, um, this, the strategy and, and people, people, uh, you know, it's hard to, to say, but there have been people who have watched the simulation uh, league and said that it looks um, similar at the decision-making level to what people do. But we, have not, we, haven't, we can't really get to the point of being able to, uh, to test it or validate it against people until we have the robots that have the, the physical capabilities. Right. I also want to ask you about the, uh, the RoboCup Junior division. I, I mean, I, is that for, say, college or high school, or how, how young are the kids that participate, and what kind of stuff can they do? I mean, this is sort of machine learning, advanced machine learning stuff. So, I mean, can, can younger kids actually participate at any meaningful level? Yeah, so it's not um, so th- it's not the emphasis so much on machine learning at that level. Of course, it, it's um, th- there are it's it's elementary, middle school, and high school kids that are that are doing it. And there's there's different uh, age divisions. the The competitions are um, there is a robot soccer version, but it's a s- simplified robot soccer task where uh, there's only one or two robots on the on the field. The ball um, is uh, emits infrared, so it's easier for the robots to to sense. It's the kind of thing you could a task you could do with Lego Mindstorm uh, robots, um, and uh, so it's you know it's more of a, um, a a much much simplified version of the task at, at a level, of course, where you want the student to be able to to succeed at it and to come and, and have a sense of accomplishment. So um, they don't necessarily to to be successful at RoboCup Junior. They don't need to be inventing new algorithms or new, new, uh, machine learning approaches or any, you know, they can be, um, building the, building the robots, using the sensors that exist and just trying to, to put something together. The other, uh, there is also a, a, a robo, a robot dance, uh, competition in RoboCup junior, which, um, is that the, the kids are encouraged to choreograph a dance to music where the robots and the, the kids, um, play a part together in the, uh, uh in the show. And so it's, you know, sort of, uh, and this is, um, we find has, has been appealing to, to, uh, to a lot of the girls that, that are, um, but, uh, um, and is it one way to sort of keep the gender mix in, um, RoboCup junior more mixed, but I mean, that's not to say exclusively, uh, that, that it's only the girls that are interested in the dance or that there aren't girls in the other, um, leagues, but that's just sort of one of the ways to, to broaden the, the type of, of activities. And there also is a, um, sort of a junior rescue competition kind of thing where the robots have to follow um, follow a line and go up a ramp and, and sort of do some much, much simpler tasks. But, um, and there, there's a focus there on cooperation too. They form these um, sort of uh, teams that are composed of uh, students from two different countries who haven't met each other before the competition and they have to put their robots together and find a way at the event 
to turn it into a good team. So there's a lot more sort of team building exercises and things like that. Oh, that's really cool. So kids can just sign up and to participate, not necessarily have formed a team prior to the competition. Yeah, well, there, well, they have, there are sort of qualifying events in, in various countries. And it's, it's actually, I mean, it's not as big in the U.S. because there's the, the U.S., there's, a, there's um, a lot of kids and a lot of schools are involved in the first robotics competitions. Um, but in many yeah, other lot, countries. Lot, okay, I, I, Peter, could you repeat that? I lost you again. Is there a lot sure. of kids that what? There, there's a lot of kids in the, in the U.S. Who, uh, part, whose schools participate in the first robotics competitions. And so um, that, that right now is by far, in terms of numbers, the most popular robotic competition for kids in the U.S. But in some of the other, in some other countries, RoboCup Junior is the main um, junior robotics event. And so they have sort of big national uh, RoboCup Junior events and qualifying, and then it's the best teams from there that get invited to the international ones. Um, so they, they typically do have teams formed already. They have, you know, they, you don't just show up without a robot. They've already spent many months putting together the robot that they bring to the competition, but then their robot gets teamed up with another team's robot from a different country, perhaps, and, and they form this sort of super team. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, the uh, What about for the um, the the main RoboCup competition, I mean, does it have to be a team from an academic institution or could an, an ad hoc group of uh, tech guys get together and try and enter one of these competitions? And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's open to any, anybody. And there've been, um, there've been teams from, from industrial research labs or from companies or just independent people come. Um, there is in some of the leagues, there's, uh, there's typically a qualification process where you need to write a team description paper and show that you have some you know preliminary progress towards a, a team um but that but really you know there's there's definitely there's no requirement that you be from a university there's um you can go to the robocup web web pages and they the the robocup 2013 competition will be the next one it's going to be in eindhoven in the netherlands and just by going to the robocup 2013 website you can keep up to date on the the, the deadlines for registration and qualification and you, you choose which league you're going to be involved in, but it can really, it's, it's open to anybody. Cool. I'd like something else that I saw on your, uh, on your website when I was just kind of making some notes, which is that you've done some work and with autonomous driving vehicles. That's right. Um, and you also mentioned that Astro, your buddy who you've, uh, sounds like you've done some research work with has, is now Google X labs, which is, you know, where the Google driving car came out of and Sebastian Thrun or Thrun, I'm not sure how to pronounce his, his last name, uh, has, has, uh, you know, he's gained a lot of uh, notoriety lately because of Udacity and also because of the self-driving car. So what, what work have you done? Are you still doing? And, and I don't know if you tell us about anything that's going on between, you know, in that area. Sure. So, um, the research that, that, uh, we've done, um, first of all, we've, Participated in the DARPA Urban Challenge, um, which was the the event that had uh, cars driving in traffic um, autonomously. And uh, unlike some of the the teams that got a lot of notoriety for it, we've treated it here at, at UT Austin as an education initiative. So I, I had a a, um, a group of in what's called the the Freshman Research Initiative. Um, here that's sponsored by the College of Natural Sciences that, that really has the philosophy that, that undergraduate students ought to get involved in research from the beginning of their academic career, starting in their freshman year. Um, and uh, so I used it as an opportunity to really use the, the Urban Challenge as a um, motivating introduction to research. And um, in that first year, it wasn't just freshmen. There were also some, some uh, upperclassmen involved and some graduate students and a postdoc um, and some colleagues at a group, Austin Robot Technology, that we all we collaborated all together um, and uh, entered a team that we really weren't uh, expecting to go very far, but ended up going all the way to the to the national um, uh, qualifying event in um, in California. We brought a team, brought a team of six undergrads there in 2007, and went went really quite far. Um, and since then, we've had the autonomous car here as a, a research platform, and have continued that course. But really, the thing that that's been distinctive in our research in autonomous driving has been really thinking ahead towards a time when all of the cars on the road are autonomous, or right. most of the cars on the road are autonomous. Thinking about what that would mean in terms of traffic protocols and, and laws, do we still need to have those cars use stop signs and traffic signals? Um, 
or are, are there more efficient things that, that we can do that could reduce traffic jams and congestion, conserve fuel and emissions um, by reimagining traffic laws and traffic uh, regulations in a way that, that supports and takes advantage of the capabilities of autonomous cars. And we've specifically focused at intersections um, and come up with a much more fine-grained method for getting cars to interleave at intersections rather than uh, a light turning green and all the cars moving in one direction. We've thought instead of having the cars call ahead to an intersection with a reservation of exactly when they intend to arrive and the path they plan to take, and, um, and blocking off just the time in the intersection that they need and therefore allowing cars coming from different directions to barely slow down and barely miss each other, but really all move through the intersection at the same time. And we've showed that, shown that there's um, dramatic possibilities for dramatic gains there. This was research that we started back in 2003 or 2004. It was um, the, uh, something that, that uh, a former PhD student of mine, Kurt Dressner, who has since, uh, since graduated, um, he and I started working on it at the time when really people didn't believe that, that autonomous cars were coming, that it, was, you know, that it seemed like a pipe dream many, many years in the future. Um, but now, less than 10 years later, people really are believing that, that autonomous cars are going to be hitting the road. They already are starting to. And, uh, and that research is now starting to seem a little more um, possibly uh, relevant to today's or, or in the you know, near term tomorrow's world. And so we're really, act we've been actively pursuing that. Um, I've had a project with the federal highway administration for the past several years on trying to, to bring that to fruition. Is, is the Google self-driving vehicle, I mean, is that still, is that the most advanced self-driving vehicle today or are there other competing, uh, I don't know, research projects that are, are, are that surpass it in some ways? Uh, there's, there's research projects all, all around the world that, that are that are focusing in, in different directions. It's hard to say which is most advanced or you know what which is uh, surpassing. But but uh, there's um, you know there's there's progress in many different places. Right now, are you continue, how how much a part of your normal um, research is this? Um, how, yeah, how how much do you focus on the self driving car versus say the RoboCop and other things? Is this sort of a, just a a small subset that you, you use for the learning projects, or do you actively pursue it? Well, no, I, I actively pursue it. Both of, both of these, I view these as sort of motivating application domains. And, and the research in my lab is sort of, um, depending on the, the student, some people are motivated by specific applications and trying to make something work. And that's really what drives them. Um, and that was sort of how the, you know, when I, when I described my PhD thesis as being motivated by robot soccer, that was sort of the paradigm I used during my, my PhD research. But there's also many students who, who prefer to start from the more um, algorithmic and theoretical side and, uh, and look at, you know, what is the state of the art and trying to extend it in some, in some sort of um, direction that, uh, that's really not driven by an application necessarily, but by the capabilities of, of, the, of the basic technologies and algorithms. And my philosophy towards research in, in, in my lab is that, that really a complete research project has to bridge that gap some way. I don't care whether the student starts from the, the algorithms and the theory or starts from the application, but by the end, if they started from the algorithms, they need to find some domain where this applies to. And uh, in many cases, the, the students use uh, our, you know, use our um, infrastructure in autonomous driving or in robot soccer as their testbed domains. But in some cases, that's not the right domain for their research. Um, and those that do start from the robot soccer or from the autonomous driving, then they need to, you know, I put they to be able to finish their their thesis and, and complete their research. They need to to really abstract away what is the algorithmic contribution um, that could potentially apply to other domains as well. So. You know, to answer the question, both robot soccer and autonomous driving are um, have been long-term uh, motivating application domains that are really good for um, pushing research in machine learning and in multi-agent systems. But they're not the you know they're not the um, they're not the entirety of the of the research. It's they're they're there sort of as as a tool and as a, a domain to motivate and to validate the research. Right now in. Uh in, in, in your description of multi-agent systems, you said that you say some of our research on this topic contributes to and makes use of game theory. And I always I've found game theory to be a fascinating subject. I'd be curious how that actually plays into the multi-agent systems research. 
Sure. Well, I mean, game theory is is a um, abstract way of formulating uh, multi-agent interactions. It's really you know boiling down uh, when two people play uh, or when a, you know, a group of people play poker or a group of people play soccer against each other and they have choices among actions um, and the action they take, the, how good it is depends on what the other, the action that the others take. Um, this, this kind of thing happens in real life all the time, even in, in driving situations when you, you know, when you turn right or when you um, decide to take the highway rather than the side roads, the, whether that was a good decision or not depends on the decisions that the other people made at the same time, whether everybody else decided to take the highway or the, or the side roads. And, um, and so game theory is a way of sort of studying those forms of interactions at a clean theoretical abstract level. And, um, and so for instance, I have a, a student who's, who's just finishing his uh, PhD thesis now, Doran Chakraborty, um, in the area of multi-agent learning, which is trying to, um, create algorithms that, that enable an agent to learn to improve uh, their performance over time by, as they interact with um, other decision makers. So this is, I mean, this is what happens if you, you know, a good poker player needs to do this. As you play against the same player over and over again, you'd better start learning their patterns and, um, and figure out how you can lure them into traps and how you can you know, avoid the traps that they're setting for you and things like that. Um, Doran has been using uh, game theory, um, sort of abstractions of, of poker in some cases, but abstractions of other um, other multi-agent interactions in other cases, um, as his the test beds for the for the theoretical research he's doing in in game theory and coming up with new algorithms that can um, provably find the the best possible sequence of of actions when you're playing against another learning agent. And so, so game theory is just a, a way of, of formulating the problem in a, in a clean and um, uh, abstract way. Now, how many different projects do you have going on? I mean, it sounds like you have different students at different levels, undergrads, graduate students, PhD students. I mean, what, you know, it sounds, uh, yeah, exactly. What are the categories of projects that you're working on and how many would you have going on at any one time? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good question. I, I have... Um, in my lab right now, uh, I have 11 PhD students. And so in principle, each of them is working on uh, a project that will lead to a, to a PhD thesis. Now, some of them are at the early stages of their, um, their student careers, so they haven't yet formulated what that project will be. And maybe they're working, some of them are working um, on a project with, with other students. Um, but I have, there are uh, three students who will finish their PhDs this, this next, uh, semester, um, that'll, so that'll at this, you know, sort of, um, reduce the number of projects that are, that are going on because usually when a student graduates, um, sometimes that that's signals the end of the project that they were work, working on. Sometimes they're working on a bigger project and another student picks it up. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard to quantify exactly, uh, you know, what constitutes separate projects because some, you know, there's several people who are working on Re, different aspects of reinforcement learning. So in, you know, in some sense, that's all part of, of one project. Um, but it, they're, they're all working on a different enough part that, that it's, uh, that it can constitute basically, um, a PhD thesis, which is, means they have to have enough material to basically write a two or 300 page book about that, the, um, the, the project that they're working on. So, um, the, I guess there's, there's no real, real, I can't just give you a number, but, um, right. There, you know, but there are, you know, the broad categories are, like I say, sort of the machine learning um, oriented projects, the multi-agent systems um, and the robotics. But, you know, for instance, one of the students who's graduating is doing reinforcement learning applied to robotics. And uh, Doran Chakraborty, I just mentioned, is doing um, machine learning and multi-agent systems mixed together. So it's really the intersections of these these three areas that form most of the research in my lab. What what percentage of your time is spent? doing things like versus actually doing your own research? It sounds like you have a lot of balls in the air with all these projects and competitions and, and everything going on. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's a, a professor's time is, is uh, we get, we get pulled in, in many different directions. It's a big juggling act in, in some sense. Um, the, the research that I do, you know, as, as a, uh, as a graduate student and as a postdoc, I was really 
uh, in charge of the, the all aspects of the research that I was doing um, with my, you know, an advisor uh, giving guidance, but I was doing the coding and doing most of the writing and things. As a professor, um, I, I um, am doing the research with the, with the students where um, I'm playing more of the advisory role. Um, I, it's my job to, uh, to help identify the important research directions, to help uh, guide and push in the, in the directions that I think are going to be, be fruitful. Um, but for the most part, I don't have the time anymore to, to do the, the programming of the, um, of the algorithms. Um, the students are, are doing that. And uh, the exception is, is every once in a while, and this is sort of it's built into academia, but every once in a while there's, there's uh, time for a sabbatical. So I had a year um, about four years ago where um, I left Austin and, and uh, went to another university and spent the time away from my, uh, my students and many of my other responsibilities and there um, took the time to start up a new research direction and during that year, I did a lot. I did a lot of the sort of uh, original research and the thinking and the coding and the writing, um, and then brought that new direction back to my lab. And now some of the, I've been continuing it in collaboration with my students. So um, it's still a lot of most of the time, and the most sort of in, enjoyable part of my time is doing the research with uh, with my students. But it's it's playing a, a role of. Um, sort of meeting with them and guiding and, and doing, helping them when, when they really um, meet an obstacle and we need to, to think about how to get a, get around it and make the sort of big decisions in the research. Um, but that's one of the, you know, one of the joys of, of being a, a, a professor is that you have lots of different students who are, have different interests and, uh, and you can be doing many different things at, at once. Um, it's important not to get, stretch to stretch too thin. And so there needs to be a theme, a unifying theme that, that holds everything together. And so, like I say, that's in my lab, it's the, uh, the learning and multi-agent systems and their interaction where that everything really sort of hangs off of that. Oh, well, I have uh, one final question for you, which is, um, do you have any plans or thoughts on maybe writing a layman's book on the subject of, uh, multi-agent systems, robotic soccer, RoboCup, or any of this stuff? Um, well, I guess the, the closest that I've, I've come to that is there was actually a uh, a, a book series that was um, that is sort of a layman's uh, guide to philosophy. Um, it's been it's uh, it's I think the popular philosophy series it's called. Um, and a friend of mine who I used to play soccer with in in Pittsburgh, Ted Ted Richards, uh, edited a book called Philosophy and Soccer, and <laughs> it came out just before the last World Cup in uh, in two thousand ten. And in there, I, with, uh, with two other, with a student and a postdoc of mine, we wrote a, uh, an article about robot soccer. And um, the, the sort of mission in this book was to write an, uh, an article that illustrated some philosophical concept, but without lots of um, jargon, without any uh, citations. I think we were allowed three different references at most, but they really could, you know, to a layman, um, explain some philosophical concept and we wrote about um about the essence of soccer what's it what are the essential qualities from a philosophical perspective of um of soccer in the form of asking the question what would the rules need to be um if in the year 2050 people play against robots and at the end of the day if the robots win everybody would believe everybody would agree all people would agree that robots are actually better than people at soccer. And so, right. and for instance, you know, if in 2050 we fielded a team of robots and when, you know, the whistle blows, uh, they go up, walk up to the ball and kick the ball 500 miles an hour towards the goal. Um, and like, or, you know, use a cannon or something like that. Sure. The robots would win every single time, but people would say, well, that's not really soccer, right? We've, we've right. somehow violated the essential characteristics of, of soccer. And, um, and this, this sort of, you know, these, this kind of thing came up also when, when people were playing chess, when, when uh, Kasparov was playing against Deep Blue, um, they had to decide what would be the rules that would still make it chess and would not give the computer an unfair advantage. And I was, as writing, in writing this article, I was able to, to speak with, with David Levy, who was instrumental in writing the rules for the Kasparov-Deep Blue um, match. 
but so in this in this this book on philosophy and soccer, um, we have just one of the articles. There's it's a whole book of them, and you know, there's other books such as the the loneliness of other chapters like the loneliness of the referee or the aesthetics of the penalty kick and, and things like this. But ours is on uh, really you know, uh, digs deeply into the, this goal of this robot soccer goal of, of 2050 and, and beating human um, soccer players, what it would really mean um, to, to convince people that robots are better and, uh, and what are the essential characteristics of soccer. So I, I think that's, that is definitely an article that's accessible um, to the general to the general public i think the whole book i think would be interesting um interesting to people so that, what, that would what, be the thing i could point you to what's it called again uh i believe it's called philosophy and soccer um okay i can find uh yeah just send me a link and i'll uh i'll uh, yeah. add it to the, note, the show notes so people can if you remind it. me i can um i can send it to you it's it yeah so the the article is called can robots play soccer and okay. the, the book is called Soccer and Philosophy, Beautiful Thoughts on the Beautiful Game. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, add this to the notes. Well, Peter, we're uh, running up against the hour mark, and I promised that I'd uh, keep this to an hour because I know you have uh, a, lot st- a lot of stuff going on. So uh, first, I just want to thank you for, uh, for being on the show and taking as much time as you did to talk. Sure, my, my pleasure. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, it's been a lot of fun, and I uh, look forward to seeing your results in 2013. <laughs> Thanks. We'll do our best. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.